Hello, everyone. It's uh, Larry Kotlikoff back with uh, Economics Matters, the podcast. Uh, I'm delighted today to have David Blanchett. Um, he's the managing director and head of retirement research for PGIMDC Solutions. Now, what is that? That's uh, the global investment management business of Prudential Financial Inc. We're all familiar with Prudential. It's a huge company. David has a PhD, a CFA, um, and a CFP. And uh, let me just read a little bit of his bio. Um, first of all, in his job, he develops research and innovative solutions to help improve retirement outcomes for investors. So he's into financial uh, advice, planning. Uh, he'll tell us more. Prior to joining PGIM, he was the head of retirement research for Morningstar Investment Management. And before that, the direct, he was the director of consulting and investment research for the retirement plan consulting group at, at Unified Trust Company. So he's worked for some major uh, companies. He's published over 100 papers in a variety of industry and academic journals. Uh, so he's writing for uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Advisor's Perspective, Think Advisor. So he's really in the mainstream of, uh, he's really a, a big star in this uh, field of, per, of financial analysis and advice. And uh, he's gotten awards from the Academy of Financial Services, the CFP Board, the Financial Analyst Journal, the Financial Planning Association. He's got too many awards here to, to really journal financial planning, journal financial services. My God, retirement management journal. Uh, I wish I could get one of these awards. The, <laughs> the, Maybe you could hand me one, sell me one of yours. Uh, anyway, he's currently an adjunct professor of wealth management at the American College of Financial Services, research fellow of the Alliance for Lifetime Income, formerly a, a member of the Executive Committee for the Defined Contribution Institutional Investment Association and the ERISA Advisory Council. ERISA is a major uh, institution in Washington, employee research. Uh, what is ERISA? Oh, no, no, this is ERISA. This is the the the... This is the government, uh, sorry, I was getting this mixed up with the EBRI. ERISA is the law that was passed, what was in 74, the, to regulate the uh, defined benefit pension industry. And in, um, yeah, so he's got all these awards and accolades from different uh, media outlets and, uh, and associations. He holds a degree in finance and economics from the University of Kentucky a master's degree in financial services from the American College of Financial Services, a master's degree in business administration from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and a doctorate in personal financial planning uh, from Texas Tech University. So, geez, you are Mr. Degree, and you look like you're 25. So something's not quite right, doesn't quite square here. When David isn't working, he's probably out on a jog playing with his four kids or rooting for the Kentucky Wildcats because David was born and bred in Kentucky and he now actually lives in Kentucky, I just found out, in Lexington, Kentucky. And he's commuting, I guess, to uh, Prudential's headquarters in New Jersey and around the country all the time. So we're going to have a great conversation here, David. Great to have you. Uh, maybe you want to just uh, tell people how you, you know, we know where you're born. How did you end up uh, on your career path? Path. What what uh, took you down this path? Sure. So, you know, I've always been uh, fascinated by financial planning, financial advising. Um, when I was in high school, I don't know, I was just drawn to this notion of helping people make better choices. So for the last, I don't know, 20 plus years, that's kind of all I've been doing. Um, when I first got started, I actually was selling life insurance for a few years. I became a financial advisor. Um, and I would say that my, my role has changed now where I'm working within PGM and Prudential on issues around helping people accomplish their goals, but it's all kind of been the same thing, right? You know, it's, it's helping people figure out, you know, how much to save, how much they can spend, how to invest, things like that. So um, now I would say I'm more of a, like a financial planning academic than I used to be more of a practitioner, but it's, it, to me, it's the same. It's, it's just helping people kind of realize their financial goals. Cool. So we we decided uh, ahead of the uh, uh, of starting this that maybe we would discuss the difference between economic space financial planning and conventional financial planning at least for a while, and then I, I have some other kind of questions about 
people's behavior, which is a big question mark, I think, in my mind and other people's mind, why so many people just do not get their act together. I mean, there was, a, I think, a, a study released, I'm not sure who came out with this, uh, just maybe it was a couple of days ago or yesterday, said that um, uh, retirement, the typical or the average retirement account was something like $125,000 of people coming into retirement. The median was about $25,000. So we're talking about people, the, the vast majority of Americans coming into retirement with no wealth. And the median spending in the country is around 160,000 bucks. So you can't even afford basically one year. Most people can't afford one year of median household spending uh, in America. So this is like, this is beyond a crisis. Uh, this is a description of a complete kind of failure. This retirement uh, account system tax financed that we set up decades ago to encourage people to save the Roth, uh, the IRAs, the, the, uh, the 401ks, the 403bs, the SEPs, we have all these different plans. Um, is Well, let me just hit, since we're on this for a second, uh, is, this, is this an admission really or proof that the whole thing has failed, that we need to more or less compel people to save because they won't do it on their own? So, you know, I think that that defined contribution plans, which we could kind of lump together as 401ks and 403s, like they've been moderately effective. Um, if you look at individuals who aren't covered by a retirement plan at their employer and those that, that are, people that have DC plans do much better than those that don't. I think to your point, you know, if you look at other countries that do have much higher required savings rates, you see significantly higher balances at retirement. So um, there is part of me that kind of acknowledges that even if you have intelligent defaults, that people aren't going to save enough, right? Um, and so I'm not I'm not opposed to having like a mandatory contribution level in DC plans. I just don't know that we have the political will as a country to actually do that. So um, I'd like to see significant increases in the default savings rates in 401k plans, right? You know, when when the PPA was passed back in 06, there was three percent. Three percent doesn't get you anywhere for retirement. If we increase those to say 10 or 12 percent, we might see better behaviors, but even a lot of folks can opt out or access their savings. So um, I'm I'm positive on the DC industry, but I do think we can do things that would definitely um, improve savings rates. Well, it certainly works for a lot of people like us. I mean, no, no question, but the ones who aren't contributing or not contributing enough. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's unfortunately, uh, it's not working out. So I, I think, what, so I have a pet proposal for how to fix social security, which would involve uh, shutting down uh, the old system, paying off accrued benefits and forcing everybody to contribute into a, a basically a personalized account where all the money is jointly invested, not by Wall Street, but by my laptop. And uh, everybody's getting the same return and it's there's progressivity and uh, the money comes out as an inflation uh, adjusted annuity that's um, cohort specific. Um, that, uh, so, but I'm not going to take us through that. But I, I'm, I'm with you that compulsory. We have to get to compulsory saving because we're just not uh, disciplined enough for whatever reason it is. And, and of course, it could be that people have assets in other places. They don't. They haven't accumulated this way, but they put money into the restaurant that they started, mm -hmm. or, um, or some real estate that they're renting out. So we can't necessarily make too much of. Uh, such a low level of retirement accounts on average. Uh, we have to look at kind of the overall picture uh, distribution of, of adequacy of retirement preparation. But let's let's uh, just talk for a bit about, um, and then we'll come back maybe to this question of behavior. Why, for the, the ones who aren't actually doing it, um, you know, what's going on? Um, uh, so we, we'll come back to that kind of behavioral finance question, but uh, uh, economics versus financial, <laughs> conventional financial planning. David encouraged me to raise this question with him. Uh, I have this financial planning software, Maxify.com, which does economics-based planning. Uh, I don't want to be always hawking it in these podcasts, so I'm. That's why I wasn't 
necessarily going to bring it up uh, right off at least. Um, but Dave wants to chat about it. So great. I'm always delighted to talk about it. So the, the economics approach goes back like 100 years to work by Irving Fisher. He was the top dog economist at Yale. He was at Yale in the 1920s. He did just fundamental work in all kinds of things. The reason we know the relationship between interest, nominal interest rates and inflation, it's called the Fisher Fisher's rule. You've probably seen that. Um, and um, so he also developed the first kind of model of lifetime, uh, uh, what's called a consumption smoothing, where you are, you're basically it's the model of a squirrel. Uh, a squirrel is going to be young, the squirrel is going to be old, the squirrel is going to be retired in the nest when they're old, they're going to accumulate acorns, eat some when they're young, but the rest are going to save. And the idea is to have the same, basically the same number of acorns to eat when you're young and you're old. That's consumption smoothing. And it comes from satiation, that if the, if the squirrel ate all the acorns when he was young, he'd be stuffed. When he's old, he'd be starving. That the downside of having too few acorns when you're old, you know, when you're old is much worse than the upside of having more acorns when you're young. And that's what's leading physiologically to our wanting to save uh, and not consume every, you know, eat, not eat 20 steaks in one day. Uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, so economics says to, you know, very simply just collect information about people's resources, which all the financial planning programs do but don't ask them what they want to do, because what they'd like to do, if I asked you what your what your desired target is, if you asked me, I'd say it's a billion dollars a day. That's what I'd like to spend in retirement. And please make it happen, financial planner or financial software. But economics says, and our software says, tell us what you got. We're going to tell you uh, how to allocate that so that you can have the same number of acorns to eat every year for the rest of your life. In other words, we'll figure out your sustainable spending so that you, the living standard per household member stays the same. Obviously, the household, if there's more mouths to feed, you have to have more acorns to keep everybody's acorn per person fixed, if you like. Taking into account, you know, a joint economy, you know, economies and shared living. So that in a nutshell, it's basically, you know, let's figure out uh, a smooth living standard path, and then let's figure out ways to raise it by maximizing social security benefits, lowering taxes, playing with retirement accounts, Roth withdrawals, and so forth, um, to get the benefits up, the taxes down, the spending up, and uh, or you could you know work longer, see what that pays off in terms of higher spending, uh, retire in Texas where there's no state income tax, um, uh, downsize your home. All the, all the kinds of different things that you clearly are involved in thinking about too. So that's economics-based planning. Maybe you want to explain conventional planning and then we can have a little back and forth about, I can criticize it a bit and you can criticize maybe economics-based planning. And Well, you know, I, I think what you described is, is how a lot of financial planning tools work, right? There's this notion that you're going to, I mean, you can either give them a goal or you can solve for a goal. And this, there's this idea that, you know, I want to spend $100,000 a year in retirement and all that, I guess. For me, what what I'm more interested in is kind of like, at least right now, is like the way that we define outcomes and the way that we actually do the modeling. So, you know, for example, like the most common outcomes metric in most financial planning tools today is the probability of success, Right. Um, and what that is, for those of you that are listening to know what it is, you, you look at a given goal, and then um, if you accomplish the goal in its entirety, you're effectively assigned a value of one for that particular trial. So these are simulations where there's uncertain returns. And so you might do a thousand different trials or a thousand different hypothetical retirements. And so what happens then is you, you do that a thousand times and you look at each individual trial or like fake retirement and you figure out what percentage of those you accomplish your goal, right? A, a huge problem with that though, is that, is that it, it, it assumes that if you fall a dollar short in the 30th year of retirement, like that's the same outcome as falling a dollar short in the first year of retirement um, and then having no more income. So I, what, what concerns me is that when you use, a, you know, I would call it like a binary outcomes metric. So ones and zeros, right? Either you do or you don't, you, you don't accurately capture how individuals feel about like a different continuum of outcomes, right? So one, like the outcomes metric that I think is, is very predominant in our industry can lead to information or results that are not very good, but also 
a lot of tools assume that the goal itself is, is static, or I have to spend a certain amount every year. And when you um, incorporate the fact that individuals can cut back on spending if they need to, and the, and, the, and the penalty or the cost or the disutility of doing so varies based upon the type of consumption, that also leads to different outcomes. So I think that, you know, what I'm kind of, I don't know that I'm advocating for, for us to change kind of like how it works in general versus kind of the ways that a lot of advisors think about, you know, what, what it means to spend and consume in retirement, as well as the outcomes metrics we use to quantify outcomes. Question, how financially secure do you feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer. Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful. Accurate. Easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. So... So you're on the same wavelength as me. You're um, you have all these degrees. They're not in economics, but ultimately they're in, in economics, really, because all the stuff that you've been you studied and working on, it's all economics. So uh, and kind of economics is basically fundamental common sense. It's mm -hmm. the and when we do Monte Carlo simulations in our uh, there's economics says you know there's two ways to do uh, financial planning to handle risk. One is to use very conservative assumptions. That's called a certainty equivalent. I'm going to act as if things are for sure. I'm going to plan as if things are for sure, but what I'm going to assume is going to be very conservative to take into account the risk. And that's actually fundamentally underlying asset pricing when we price a stock and it's got this very you know high average dividend payout, but we make we discount it because of the risk. We, we do a risk adjustment to make the value of it smaller uh, that's really kind of certainty equivalent analysis. So that's one branch of finance, but the other branch is just to say, look at, do Monte Carlo simulations and just see what's going to happen to somebody's living standard through time as they get high returns and low returns. And uh, and you can assume a spending behavior as they go along. Mm -hmm. and that's what we do. We um, uh, We show living standard trajectories. Uh, when we ask people to run the, our Monte Carlo and tell us about what investment strategies they they want to they have and what they want to compare with, we say, okay, let's run. We're going to run Monte Carlo simulations of your living standard outcome, where every year you you will adjust. We're not going to calculate the probability. Assume that uh, you're going to stick to some target that you're set, setting, you know, out of the blue without any reference really to your resources, what you can really afford. And then you're going to stick to that right up till you go bankrupt, or you may, you know, succeed in dying, or you may actually just uh, have the target low enough so that you can uh, spend, uh, you know, not go broke and spend at that level, or um, the, um, yeah, or you can just be lucky with your returns. But the idea that one would actually plan that way. I'm very uncomfortable with that because it's really, uh, you know, judging a, a plan that has a, an 80% probability of of um, succeeding means there's a 20% probability of failing, and that means you're bran you're bankrupt. And as you make the risk higher in the portfolio, that probability of succeeding goes up. The probability of failing goes down. But I think what you were just saying, what I was hearing, is that the probability of failing earlier goes up as well, which means you're bankrupt for longer. You're, you're eating no, no acorns for many more, more years. And that is something that I don't think most financial planners using this methodology, this conventional methodology, really understand that there's more than just success and failure. There's also the timing of when the failure would hit. Would hit. Mm -hmm. 
And that's almost exactly what you were referencing, I think, uh, if I got, if I read you right. So, so this adjustment, you know, but the other thing about the adjustment is that the adjustment has to be made in the context of not say, not living with some planned spending, uh, adjusting that maybe uniformly up or down, but adjusting uh, all the taxes that are associated with spending more or less mm-hmm. in the future and having more asset income because you've done well in the market. All that has to happen uh, instantly and internally consistently so that so that the Monte Carlo trajectories of Livingston are actually, you know, valid. They're not kind of based, you know, h- half of it's right, but half of it's wrong. Anyway, that's that's where we, uh, and then there's there's another method of, of um, uh, Monte Carlo analysis of, of investment analysis that we do in our software, which is called upside investment. Uh, what I was just telling you about was full risk investment, which is you take upside and downside risk, but you, you know, you spend, try and spend cautiously, invest, you know, in a diversified way and you get to see all the out trajectory outcomes. But the other way would be you treat, um, you invest just in tips, except for some money that you put in the stock market, but that money that you put in and any money you're going to add to it. Uh, you tell the program when you're going to, you know, start withdrawing from it, and when you withdraw, you put it back into tips. Any withdrawals, and we simulate your spending, assuming all that money that's in the market's lost 100%. So we build you a, a safe living standard floor, and then because whenever you take, when you leave the casino and you take money out of the stock market, you're investing it safely. Now you can raise your floor for the rest of your life. You're not going to put it back in. So. So that's just showing you trajectories of your living standard that are upside, no downside. So what you're, you know, that's, a, that's I think, um, kind of connects to a lot of people's angst of, they don't want to be out of the market, but they don't want to be in the market. They, don't, they want to sleep at night and know that their basic living standard is going to be secure. And this is a way of basically, you know, having some uh, some money in the game, but but being, being safe uh, in that respect. Yeah, so a few things. I mean, I think one thing that, like, to me, one of the like the, the larger misconceptions, right, is that if you're using like a binary outcomes metric, so succeed or fail, like failure is not bankruptcy, right? Because ev- almost every American has some amount of existing personal pension, whether it be Social Security, defined benefit, something. And so I think that, like, one of my concerns when when you you could tell someone that they have a zero percent chance of success, but they could be replacing. of their retirement income goal with income that is guaranteed for life. And so like success rates almost by definition focus on the marginal role of savings when it comes to funding a goal, right? And so you could actually run scenarios where you you make someone worse off from the perspective of success rates, but kind of radically improve almost all their outcomes. Or if they do happen to not accomplish their goal in its entirety, they accomplish, you know, more of it and more often. So like, you know, failure, if you view an outcome as either ones or zeros, isn't necess- necessarily like that bad based upon how bad you fail. I think that, you know, what you just talked about though, is this key around like, if you do have a shortfall in your in your retirement income goal, based upon the level of the shortfall is how it could affect you, right? So um, if we just, if you just kind of decompose the retirement goal into essential and discretionary expenses, you know, if I have to cut back on my discretionary expenses, like I, I might be unhappy, but not like crazy unhappy. If I can't like pay my mortgage or whatever else you know, over healthcare, then I'm like really, really unhappy. So I think there is this important notion of like, what do I have to have every year? And so, you know, once that is covered, I think, I think it can really change how you invest the rest of your portfolio. Now, at the same time, I think what we have to recognize is that is that we don't even most of us don't even model what failure means for retirees, right? You know, I would define like true failure um, as being alive and being broke. So like two things have to happen, right? If you look at how most most stochastic or money call tools work for financial planning, um, the only the only random variable is returns, right? So you could actually in, re- in real life, you could, if you were to have them to pass away at age 80, um, then it doesn't matter if your portfolio didn't survive for the next like 15, 20 or 30 years. And so if you, you know, I think 
for better or for worse, people are living longer. And as they live longer, I guess that's for the better. Um, and if you assume retirement lasts 30 or 35 years with certainty, I think that could lead to, you know, you know, under consuming. People will say, well, David, you know, I want to ensure that my retirees accomplish their goal. But I would say that, you know, it, it's a balance, right? You know, if you want to, if you want to retire successfully, save 50% of your pay forever, then I can, I can like guarantee you, you're going to have enough money. Well, but, but, but there's a cost there. So I think that what, what most Americans need, given your earlier comment around under savings, is an idea of this balance, right? And so it's telling them, hey, you know, if you, if you save this much, you'll get this much and kind of help them better understand the trade-offs. And I think that, that, that a lot of the tools that exist that use success rates or kind of binary outcome metrics do result in effectively oversaving or underspending because they're not kind of accurately capturing the magnitude of failure if it happens, and then what, what, what failure is when thinking about kind of the random nature of mortality. So, so I'm with you 100%. I mean, the, the basic story in, in economics is that we get happiness from the acorns. It's not from, the, from, the, from eating the acorns, not from the pile of acorns, and not from how big it is, it's uh, the, our wealth. But uh, so, and you're right that the off the top expenses like your mortgage, your taxes, uh, our software says, oh, you got to pay those. We're, we're going to simulate with our Monte Carlo the full risk investing or the upside investing, your living standard of your, where that's discretionary spending per household member. It's not total spending. It's this is after you've met your off the top expenses um, along the trajectory. So you do get to see uh, how much, whether you're going to get to eat steak or cat food uh, because it's about discretionary spending. That's what the picture is. And then I certainly agree with you that failure of your portfolio is not failure of your 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 living standard because you could have, you know, maybe you've got a thirty thousand dollar a year social security benefit. You worked a lot, but you save nothing, and you have ten dollars in wealth, and you put it all on, you know, twenty three red at the stock at the roulette wheel, and you know that's probably the optimal thing to do if you've got ten bucks. <laughs> If you got a million bucks and 30,000, or if you're 10, 20 million bucks and 10,000, you want to be cautious because you could lose it all, obviously. Right. So, the, um, but again, if you see that, so some people, because of Social Security, other pensions, because of maybe real estate income coming in, uh, uh, the way they're investing, they've got a much safer living standard of. They get more of an income floor than somebody else uh, uh, who's much more dependent on the market. So paradoxically, economics says that if you're richer, if you have more wealth, you should actually be more conservative in your investments because you have no floor. You have no, you know, no protection. Whereas if you, so uh, there's a guy named Moshe Malevsky. I don't know if you know Moshe. He's a, uh, up in uh, Canada. He's Mm -hmm. I wrote this book called Are You a Stock or a Bond? And mm -hmm. it says, you know, you got to think about, you want to be kind of thinking about all your resources, not just your portfolio of, of, of fungible assets. But um, if you're all of a sudden retiring and you have a big social security benefits, you're actually, that's really in the form of a bond. Or if you keep working, your labor income, if you got a secure job like me, I'm a tenured professor. To me, that's that's like a bond. And so I already have a lot of bonds, so I can be more aggressive in terms of investing in stock to be fully diversified. Uh, so that's, you know, uh, part of uh, kind of the prescription of economics of, of uh, trying to be balanced over your lifetime, but taking into account these non, what seem to be non-financial assets, which are kind of implicitly financial assets, but they're kind of a different form. You wouldn't typically think of labor income as being, as holding a bond, right? I want to be. Yeah, I, I, I've done a bunch of research on that. I have a, a fun paper that's called like no portfolio is an aisle, right? So portfolios don't exist in isolation, right? Uh, saving money is not fun for any, any entity or individual. We want to consume it today. And so I think what's important is to just acknowledge all the other stuff you've got when it comes to investing that portfolio. I think that, you know, one, one, 
problem, if I can use that word loosely, with a lot of financial planning tools is that they, they don't provide any context around the economic value of things like Social Security benefits. Right? Social Security is, is a government bond linked to inflation that pays you as long as you're alive. For most American households, um, it's worth more than a million dollars. I think providing context, for example, on, on the household economic balance sheet can help people make better decisions. Right, you know, your earlier comment about like there's this notion of 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 how much risk you should take in your portfolio. Well, there's different dimensions of risk, right? There's risk capacity. Um, risk capacity thinks about risk in terms of how much risk should you take given what you're trying to accomplish and how you're going to accomplish it, right? Do you have a lot of guaranteed income? Are you overfunded? Are you overfunded? There's also risk preference, right? Like how do you how do you feel about risk and how do you respond to risk? And I think that there's there are some like interesting ways to think about. How to invest assets. So, you know, you know, should someone be aggressive or conservative? Well, you know, if let's say that you're that you're that you're overfunded to accomplish your goal, you've got you've got tons of money. Okay. To me, the next question would be, um, you know, do you want to maximize certainty around accomplishing your goal, or do you have secondary goals that are important, like leaving bequests to your kids? Right. If you have no secondary goals, if you have no bequests, well, then you know, you should lock in that certainty, right? But if you have kind of multiple competing goals, I, I want both certainty around my retirement goal, but I'd love to lend money to my kids. You actually might want to be invested very aggressively up to certain points. You know, if you're like massively overfunded, you can keep rolling the dice to kind of keep getting more wealth. But then, but then you would, if if you cross certain thresholds, you would dial back immediately. So I think that in reality, like people are pretty complex creatures with multiple goals. But I think you have to kind of look at the look at look through the prism of risk capacity and preference and figuring out how to invest appropriately versus a lot of risk tolerance questionnaires that just ask you, how would you respond if markets go down? That's not a, that from my perspective is not the best way to think about the risk you should be taking across the entire life cycle. Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says Money Magic is a must read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says, you'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers. Yeah, no, I, I agree that... <clears throat> Your horizon could go beyond <clears throat> your own uh, lifetime to your children's uh, because, you know, if you're if you really, you know, if it's one thing to say, I'm going to set aside this amount and put it in tips and, you know, something inflation index bonds or safe and just that's it. I'm going to give them that money. I'm going to give them a the house uh, if I'm rich enough so I can uh, do that. And but beyond that, they're on their own versus. I'm actually kind of jointly helping them maximize their welfare, their acorn life, uh, as well as mine. And so we have to kind of think about this as a joint a problem. When I, when I talk to young people, and I, um, I tell them their best investment is to get their parents to make the right social security decisions to maximize their lifetime benefits. Yeah. Because if they don't, they're going to be on the hook for taking care of their parents, or they're going to get less and a bequest if their parents die early. So that's a strange idea. You know, you talk to Generation Z or X or whatever millennials and they don't have much to invest. To. Well, I say, you know, your parents' money is really your money. They may not like to hear that. Uh, and your money is actually their money. They may, you may not like to hear that, but you actually are in the same boat because if they're in trouble, you're gonna have to bail them out and so forth. So. So make sure that they're doing the right thing and make sure that you're doing the right thing. Uh, and, and the, but I do want to get to this lifespan um, issue that you raised in passing uh, a few minutes ago about the fact that people don't, you know, one of the biggest uncertainties that we face 
is longevity risk that we could live to 100 or we could die. You know, I've, I'm in, I'm 72. I have friends. I'm losing friends all the time. I, I, it's they're older than me, a bit older, but uh, I can see that this act, you know, does that. I'm living in this world where I'm expecting to to never die, uh, or certainly never to stop work. My retirement plan is to retire a year after I die. That's my current retirement plan, and uh, I expect that to be late. But you do die, but you also, my mom lived to 98, so you have people, uh, there's that probability, and that's a really, you don't want to be, be starving, uh, and other costs can go up. But economics says, so economics says, if you go back to, I don't know if you know this Menachem Yari article from 1965 that he's this Israeli economist, this brilliant article about life insurance and annuities, mm -hmm. and it's called Uncertain Lifetimes. I hope he gets a Nobel Prize for this. It's just a gorgeous article. And it's and it says that mathematically they're the same security. One is if you solve the problem and the result comes out with a negative value, you're buying life insurance. If it's a positive value, you're buying an annuity. So mathematically, it's the same thing. You're, you're uh, dealing with the lifespan uncertainty. But what you already said is you have to plan to live to your maximum age of life because you might, just like you have to look at the catastrophic uh, worst case scenario with your house burning down when it comes to buying life's, uh, house home, homeowner's insurance with lifespan insurance, longevity insurance, you have to focus on the worst case and if you're self-insuring, what that means is um, uh, you look at the worst case, you, that's your planning horizon. You can't make it your life expectancy or 10 years later. You have to make it your maximum, whatever you think that is. But then if you're not really super risk averse, uh, you'll take a gamble and have your acorn, you'll consciously plan to have your acorns consumption decline as you get older as the probability of making it another year gets smaller and smaller, you'll plan to spend less on acorns. And of course that co coincides with people's capacity to consume declining. You know, they just, they don't uh, have as big an appetite. They can't travel as much. On the other hand, medical costs go up. So it's risky business, of course, obviously. So what's your, um, what's your favorite financial planning tool at this point? What do you, or do you have one or do you like to look use a combination? Some planners do that. So, I mean, I don't know that I have one. So, I, I mean, I can I, I, I can build pretty complex models, right? So I don't know that I, I know enough about one to say that I love it. I think that too many that exist out there use simplistic outcomes metrics. They don't properly account for dynamic spending. And so, you know, uh, maybe I'm just too negative, but I... I I think that there's going to be more and better coming that do things. I think, you know, it's funny, you mentioned social security. I was going to mention that too. I think that, so I think a lot of the calculators out there like aren't very good. And it's actually for the reason that you hit on, um, which is just that like break even age, that is a very myopic perspective on the range of outcomes, right? What I always say is that like, if your parent, like just if, if, if you, if you delay claiming and your parents die at age 75, like you get all their stuff. Like you're gonna get, I don't know, everything that they save. So like that, like the there's a, a nice little floor to that bad outcome. Like to from my perspective, like the worst outcome for a lot of people would be that mom and dad live to 105, and not only do they deplete all of their assets, they start depleting your assets, right? That to me, like, is the bad outcome. Like, yes, if you if you both pass away at like age 73 and you delayed to 70, you did not maximize the wealth you'd pass along to your heirs. However, they're going to get something, right? So when you change the definition of the outcome from like maximizing wealth to like ensuring some kind of like minimum threshold is achieved, all of a sudden, like delay claiming makes a lot more sense. And so I think like that, that's, you know, don't think of it in terms of like the break-even age, but if you are like reasonably wealthy, I think that, that, that you know, by, by delaying as long as you possibly can, you are kind of helping ensure that if you live a really long time, you're going to have the most income that you could receive for life that would minimize the burden of you and your children. So I think that that is kind of like the perspective that's missing from a lot of these tools because if they just focus on break-even ages or wealth maximization, we'll target a minimum threshold. So like, you know, I want to make sure that my kids get at least a million dollars, whatever else it is, and then delay claiming all of a sudden makes a lot more sense when it's viewed more holistically. 
Yeah, I, I agree 100%. We, we've had, um, you know, we have this tool, Maxify Planner. I'll, I'll get you a copy. Um, but then we also had pulled out the social security code and made a tool called Maximize My Social Security. It's very only 39 bucks for, and we've had, we have a lot of planners and a lot of them have said, you need to include break even analysis. And we've been having this argument with them or some of them for 20 years. Absolutely not. It's not, you have to plan your max major life. You can't break even analysis is, um, is going to lead you to think about your life expectancy relative to the break even point. And you're not going to die on time. So you're only going to die once and it could be at a hundred, just like, you know, you can't count on your house fire being the average cost or the average fire, right? It could be the worst case. So if you're a big insurance company like in Prudential, yes, you can play the averages. That's what uh, actuarial analysis is all about. But if you're just one individual, uh, you can't pull the risk. You're only going to die once unless you're in Groundhog Day somehow. So, um, so yeah, we, so, uh, so that's not, you know, valid, valid at all. I, I agree hundred percent that that's not, uh, something one, one should, uh, consider the, uh, I guess the question is, uh, you know, one, one, one thing I, that also occurs to me in, in our discussion here is that there are so many different software programs and that are doing some form of conventional planning. And it seems like every day somebody's coming out with another, you know, great best new thing that, uh, and it's usually a very shiny object in terms of uh, even more beautiful graphics, even better slide bars, even faster answers and no real description of what's going on under the hood. And are you taking account the fact that if you adjust your spending because whatever, you know, are you taking account the fact that there's this Medicare Part B tax that uh, premium tax called the IRMA that is highly progressive and, and that the top bracket is not indexed for inflation and that social security brackets for the taxation under federal income taxation are not indexed for inflation. Are these things, these very important features uh, really being handled under the hood because if they're not, things can be, uh, uh, you know, you can get a very bad answer just just from just on those kinds of issues, but uh, let alone everything else. But but then the thing that strikes me about so many different, slightly different approaches coming out all the time is that there's no underlying core theory. Whereas in economics, the theory goes back a hundred years and it's just been built on, but it's one basic framework. It's called expected utility maximization. And all the Nobel Prizes in finance have been won by economists. Everybody who's gotten the Nobel Prize in finance has a PhD in economics, not in finance, uh, because finance really hasn't evolved as a separate field. It was always been a subfield of economics. So, uh, so all the great work in finance was done by economists uh, in the 50s and 60s, people like Paul Samuelson, Bob Merton, uh, uh, Markowitz, Harry Markowitz, Bill Sharp, uh, Jim Tobin, but they're all building on everything Fisher's work. It's all consumption smoothing. It all goes back to that squirrel. And and now the squirrel's got risk. Maybe he's got, you know, uh, uh, will some of those acorns go rotten? That's like, or did he choose these kinds of acorns that actually hold up better, but they're harder to get to? Uh, and how many of these should he get versus that? So it's So it's one... And so we built our software to just try and stay true to all that hundred years of research and just say, because, and it's very, it turns out it was very difficult. It took about, well, the company has been in business 30 years. So it took a long time to get everything working. And the lifetime balance sheet is the first thing you see when you run a program. So you, you did reference lifetime, that you can't spend more than you've got. And then a lot of the spending is off the top that you have to spend. And so what's left is your discretionary spending. Now you would just want to smooth it. And that's kind of the conversation starts in that spot. So tell me, um, let's move uh, off of this kind of individual uh, issue to the whole financial planning 
industry. How do you see that evolving? Is it getting bigger? Is it getting smaller? Are you getting more credentials? Uh, we, I talked about more tools coming out, but do you see uh, AI chat GBT taking over? Uh, so we just asked the question what we should do and it's going to, I mean, I, mean, we, you know, I could certainly think of how that might happen. What, what, what's your feeling for, where's the industry going? Are, are, pe are fewer people taking advantage of planning or more? Or how's the industry I think, going? I think I would say it's getting better, right? I think that when I first joined the industry 20-ish years ago, stockbroker was analogous with a financial advisor, right? That was like the assumed job. I think that we've seen a reduced focus collectively on investment management. I'm not saying investments aren't important, but it's one part of a plan towards individuals or teams providing more holistic financial planning services. Um, we've seen a rise in professionalism. I think it, it wouldn't be you know, a stretch to say that that financial advisors are not as widely as esteemed as accountants or attorneys or other professions, given the lack of barriers to entry. But I, I think we've seen improvement there. Um, I'm excited about the different ways that individuals can access advice. Um, there are a lot of like not so great free online tools. There's a lot of relatively low cost robo advisors. There's still the full comprehensive advisors. But to me, if people, people need help. Right, you know, making smart decisions about finances isn't always easy. You can't always just Google it and get the right answers. So, I mean, I've been, I've been proud of the steps that our profession has taken, but I also acknowledge there's, it's, it's a long way to go. Right, um, you know, someone can call themselves a financial advisor and really only sell you insurance, while someone else who uses the exact same title could be a true fee-only holistic advisor with you know designations and everything else. And so, I think that. You know, what, what concerns me more is kind of the, the, the range of quality in the industry, but I'm, I, I am excited about, you know, like the future and, 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 and how the industry has evolved, do I think better help people accomplish their goals versus just, for example, to my earlier statement, focusing on selecting a few stocks and, and not asking questions around insurance or savings or everything. How financially secure do you feel? Imagine a tool to help you make smart financial decisions a tool that factors in all your financial data and shows what you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. That tool is Maxify. Powerful, accurate, and easy to use. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify takes the guesswork out of financial decisions at every stage of life. Maxify calculates what you can afford to spend now and throughout retirement. And you can run what-if scenarios to see how your finances might change by taking a new job, buying a home, or downsizing. Knowing the impact before you decide lets you make smarter decisions so you can finally enjoy financial peace of mind. Are you ready? Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I, Maxify.com. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I've been, you know, uh, watching the industry pretty carefully for 30 years, not like you, um, but uh, I, I do think that things are evolving and improving and uh, getting closer to the economics approach, to tell you the truth. Right. I think it's a, a general, but here's the thing that, and since you're so influential in the industry, you might be able to, uh, to make a, a difference. I don't think any of the CFP courses or any of the CFA courses, the RIA programs that spend even 10 minutes teaching the economics approach to financial planning, which is different. You know, there's a, a body of theory. It doesn't have to be highly mathematical to teach it to someone. Um, I could teach it to a high school student to tell you the truth, and I'd be happy to <laughs> work with you to develop, but they don't, you know, you've got a 13-week CFP program, even taught at Boston University, where we have, you know, I've been for my entire career, basically. And I tried 15 years ago to say, look, this needs to include economics-based financial planning. And we even have a software tool. You can, we'll give it away for free to the, no interest. And then, but now there seems to be some, now we're starting to have some discussions and there seems to be some interest. So if we could have just 10% of the course, 15% based on this, you know, 
a lot of, you know, an entire, we've got 20,000 economists. This is a well-established mature field. So, you know, highly mathematical um, uh, formulations of finance, but also very simple things, but it's basically all of uh, all the same, but it's not being taught. And on the other hand, we're not teaching conventional planning in economics finance programs, either in economics departments or business schools. Nobody's teaching set a target, keep your saving on autopilot, keep your spending on autopilot, figure out the probability of, of success or failure. Nobody teaches that because frankly, we don't think it's kosher. Uh, but it doesn't pass the sniff test for, for we economists. So I think there's this big disconnect that has to, we have to get uh, uh, the planning world to learn some economics on the financial economics in a kind of a formal way uh, that I think would be a, a good thing. Obviously, so I'm not, I'm biased. I'm not saying, hey, is this approach or that approach? I'm saying, I think economics is the right approach that the industry is coming over to the economics approach but it could come over quicker if there was actual training. Anyway, your reaction. Well, I, I think we are seeing that in other, in other designations and programs. So there's some that I'm involved with the American College that do provide some of that kind of more economics-based framework around how to help people make better decisions. But to your point, um, the CFP curriculum is, 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 I mean, it's been a while. I, that was 20 years ago for me. Um, you know, it, it is definitely more kind of like practitioner focused, like implementing and like selecting life insurance and investments. But I think providing advisors with more of the kind of the theoretical foundation around household economics, you know, I think, I think could ho hopefully help them make better decisions and have a different framework that they can use to think about just the efficacy of all these different decisions, right? I mean, I think that, yes, you need to know the different types of homeowners policies and what an investment is, but like structurally, it all ties together to a plan. Like, why are you buying insurance? Why are you investing in risky assets? It, it all goes up to this kind of basic foundation that to your point, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that, that advisors are, are taught in these courses because they're not necessarily focused on providing that foundation. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we agreed on everything. You know? <laughs> That's good, right? I, there was a uh, kind of a tough-nosed Texan when I came to BU as president. His name was John Silver. He was basically getting into arguments with everybody. He liked to he was just very feisty. And so one day we're have, I'm having a meeting with him and uh, starting to leave. He says, very good meeting, one problem. I said, what the, what's that, John? He said, I'm at the, at the door. He said, we didn't have an argument. <laughs> and he was pissed. And so I said, and of course we hadn't had an argument. So what I did is I opened the door and screamed, what the hell do you mean we didn't have an argument? And I slammed the door <laughs> as far as I could, <laughs> just so he could feel better. <laughs> That's good. I like that. I like that. Yeah, we didn't have an argument um, today, and it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you. And I think it's um, going to be a great podcast. We'll have it up in a probably next week and uh, get you a copy. And thanks so much. And we'll, let's great. stay in touch. Thank you. Yeah. See you.